You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. And this episode of The Running Public is brought to you by us and The Running Public Training Plan. You may have noticed that uh, we started this this episode of Training Tuesday with a shameless plug for our Running Public Training Plan. What's up with that, Bracken? That's two weeks in a row now, Kirk. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we constantly have people ask, and, and it is constant, when we're going to monetize this thing. And it's kind of been weighing on us that our day job is coaching and we put a lot of work into our running public training plan and we don't promote it. That is our way of monetizing this thing. And I think there are a lot of people out there, we think there are a lot of people out there who could be well served by our OCR training plan online or our personal one-on-one services, um, of which we both at this time of the year have some openings. And it's time to be a little self-serving and remind people that our day job isn't podcasting. It's actual coaching. It's true. We, uh, we're just sitting on our thumbs over here, Bracken, on this fantastic training plan, and we never talk about it. We're Ever. terrible business people is what we really are. That's what it comes down to. We've erred, we've erred so far on the side of don't offend the listener by spamming them with stuff that we're not reminding people at all that we have coaching services. We've got to pay the bills. That's a disservice, I think, to uh, to not remind people that they can be helped by by uh, hopping on the plan. A very reasonable um, cost, for sure. And so I, I know, like, in our, our little intro advertisement there, we outlined what the plan, the running public training plan entails. But why don't we just go into, like, a hair more depth um, so people understand? Why don't you give us the, the once-over real quick? Well, the main general offering is the OCR training plan, and it follows the scope of the U.S. National Age Group Series for Spartan Race, which starts with some, well, theirs is a little different because they have a different distance than the North American, but it follows the the flow of the season. And so right now we are getting ready for Utah and then Asheville. And it's the kind of thing where if that's what you're preparing for, this is going to get you every step of the way. And if you're preparing for something that doesn't align with that, we have time trials on the race weekends. So it's the type of plan that it's going to get you like 95 plus percent of the way towards whatever goal you do have, because we're always time trialing and doing fitness checks and it's a progressive build in nature. So it's just an all around training plan, but it's insanely cheap. Yeah. 1999 a month. And I have, I want to say three of my buddies on the training plan, full paying, uh, customers will call it who aren't OCR athletes. They messaged me, you know, sometime since we started this thing at separate times and said, Hey, like I don't do OCR, but like I listen to your podcast for the running content. Like, does this, does this work for me? And the answer is absolutely yes. What you can do, um, is the foundation of OCR is running. I mean, that is going to get you 90% of the way there. Like the running component is, uh, the staple of being successful in this sport. And so, um, you can simply just just not do the OCR specific components in the plan or slightly tweak the workout. So you don't have to do those OCR specific components. Um, and even like, and I hate to say this Bracken, but it is true. Um, 
even if you wanted to get on the plan and just pick and choose the ones you want to do and the ones you don't want to do, it's worth nineteen ninety nine a month. If you pick two workouts out where you're like, yes, that one excites me and you can save the other ones for your bank later. Like it doesn't need to be all in or all out. It can be um, suited to your needs. And, and I don't mind picking and choosing. Of course, you're not going to follow our progression and that we can't, can't promise how that's going to turn out for you. But um, the worst thing I think is trying to come up with your workouts for the day. That's stressful more than the workout itself sometimes. And so just taking that off the table um, can be beneficial. That's true. And I think one of the big fears for the non-OCR athlete is I don't want to spend all this time doing obstacles. Well, we don't do obstacles on the training plan. We do compromised running, which gets you ready for obstacles. But it's not like we say, go run 400 meters and then do monkey bars or swing on some rings or climb some rope. We don't have any technical aspects to it. It's jumping lunges or walking lunges or burpees or something like that that stresses your body. And so to the average runner, it's probably needed to round out your deficiencies, but no one will ever be required to do an obstacle on the plan. And I think that's worth talking through in this little five second blurb here. Yeah. Yeah. I think we spoke our piece, but if you've thought about it and have been curious about it, like just because Utah and Asheville are coming up and you feel like you're too late to the game. So why start now? Uh, you're wrong. And this can still help you in your lead-ins. And then after all that, we go back into purposeful building and other type of work that's going to have you what we call like race ready, kind of at all times Mm -hmm. right now. At this point in the year, we're having you race ready before we go back and start relaying new bricks in a foundation. So um, if you want to feel race ready, no matter what races you have coming up, whether it's midsummer, second half of the summer, um, this plan is going to help sharpen you, your skills and your fitness to go out there and race well. And so it doesn't really matter the timing, in my opinion, to hop on this thing. Yeah. Last thing I'll say is that this is how strongly I believe in this plan. When I used to have friends or acquaintances who would just say, hey, could you just give me like a 90 day plan for whatever? I don't do that anymore. I just say hop on the OCR training plan for three months and then cancel. Like it's going to it's going to be better for you anyways. You're going to get more from it. And it's so close to personalized because it's based around the needs of real athletes that it's going to get you so, so close there anyways. Just do that. Every single one of those workouts I do on a regular basis. Like it's not, it's not like we're feeding you something we're not eating ourselves. And so, um, and it's a month to month deal. You can cancel at any time. It's just a month to month auto subscription comes out every month. You can unsubscribe at any time. So it's pretty simple too. Then you're not committed to any long-term deal. So, um, have we set our piece there? Do you think? Oh yeah. Yeah. We have. And and then, and then I'm just going to hop on the back of that and say, I got three, three one-on-one coaching spots open um, right now. And I don't think we've talked about our one-on-one personalized coaching at any sort of depth on this podcast in the last like six months to a year. Um, but I got a few openings and I'd like to fill them. And so, uh, reach out if you are curious, there's no commitment or, you know, in, in reaching out and start the conversation. How about you, Bracken? Where are you at? I could fill a few spots, I believe. <laughs> you believe? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of like dating, right? Not everyone I talk to ends up working out. Mm. But if if we if we end up meshing personality-wise, we're going to ride this thing out. That's right. And how it usually works, in case you're curious, is um, I think Brack and you still work the same way. But you reach out and ask. And what basically we do, at least I do now, is I just send you some questions to fill out via email to get to know you further. And then we follow that up with a phone conversation to chat things out more at length and get to know each other better before you commit to anything, um, just to make sure we're a good fit. Is that about how you work it right now, Bracken? Yeah, but I start with the call. I start with a Zoom call. 
or FaceTime or whatever video chat, so I can see a face to face, and I, I that that's the way I connect better. So I do reverse order. I do that video call, and then I do a questionnaire. So we do the same process. We just do it reverse order. That's right. Uh huh. All right. All right. Well, good. You got it. So reach out if you'd like. What is the best place to reach out to you? For me, just shoot me a message on Instagram. That's usually the best place to start. I would say that, but Instagram messages just fall through my cracks. So email me, <laughs> bracken at com. Do IG messages just slide through your cracks, Bracken? <laughs> Straight through. <laughs> so reach out if you would like to, and there's no commitment with uh, with my one-on-one coaching. It's just month-to-month as well, um, and it's one of those things you can cancel at any time. I think you run the same way, don't you? Yeah, yeah, no commitment. No cool. sense doing something that's not working. Yeah. Okay. Right, we had we had a guest on a while back, Justin Hamilton. He was was and is a phenomenal human being who has gone through some life struggles. His story is worth listening to. I don't want to ruin the story for you if you haven't, but a quick refresher to those who did listen. He is an ultra runner who found that calling after hitting rock bottom with alcohol. And his life was pretty much hanging by a thread. Well, he he and I met on course at the Tennessee Mile last year. I was doing the six hour. He was doing the 24. And and we had some good little 30-second conversations that bonded us the way that only 30-second race conversations can. And ever since then, he's been talking about how he's going back to the Mid-State Mile, which happened this past weekend. And the Mid-State Mile is the Tennessee Mile's big tentpole event, and it is a last-man-standing event. And theirs is a little different. Usually on the hour, every hour, a loop goes out. Well, they have a shorter loop, so they do it every 20 minutes a loop goes off. 1.1 miles, 340 feet of vert. They say that if you power hike with purpose, you can get done in 16 to 17 minutes on this hilly loop. So roughly you have a three to, if you're running, three to eight minute transition time to get yourself ready for the next loop. And he's been saying he's going to come back and he's going to break the record and win this thing. Same way he approached the 24-hour race, he was there to break the record, and he did so. I saw his post It was this this past weekend. You saw the post. Yeah. I don't think it's a spoiler alert to say that Justin did what Justin said he was going to do. And he went over 40 hours straight of racing. It was down to two individuals, and eventually he was the only one left. They got over, I think, 128 miles That with being 340 340 feet of vert per lap. He was over 39,000 feet of climbing with the the coinciding 39,000 feet of descending. And that's impressive alone. But if you watch the guy, he didn't change from mile or hour one through 40. He was outgoing, positive, and gracious the entire way from what I could see. And that is nearly impossible to do going two days without sleep and running the whole time it was crazy so justin you blew my mind i was tracking all weekend and it's nice to have someone who has success that you have a little connection to congrats justin that was fun to see uh your post come through and and i've been following you on instagram and seeing all your you know for like three weeks you've been like taper run number this and this and you're just like we're such a student in your lead in it was fun to see your progress and then to go out and nail a nail it on race day is pretty fantastic and well we shouldn't spoil the story um but 
his was one where I was just kind of hanging on every word. It was just like a kid around <laughs> a campfire being told a story, and his was very, very captivating. So if you're looking for something to listen to and you want to go back only, what, a month and a half, two months, maybe it was yeah. we, we interviewed him, uh, worth going back to. Yeah, and, and I think it's disrespectful. People say, what are your best episodes ever, your favorite ones? It's disrespectful to the body of athletes we've had because there have been so many. But whatever list we made – top three, top five, top 10, whatever it is, he's on that list in terms of just stories. The entire time, you're right, we were sitting there watching him talk and listening rather than like thinking and preparing questions. We were just along for the ride. So it's worth listening to. Yeah, and I'll just plug our last episode with Danny Moreno. Um, fantastic insight into the mind of a true professional mm-hmm. trail runner. Like her mindset, her approach... Like, if you want to understand what it might take for you to get to the next level in this sport, just go and, like, it's in, it's infused in the entire interview with her from Friday. And a lot of you that are OCR people don't know Danny Moreno, but she's one of the biggest studs we've probably had on this podcast to date. She's an absolute monster. And just the way she breaks it down, the way she analyzes mm-hmm. courses, the way she trains, it's, it's really insightful how she keeps speed into her training, even though she's out there for four-hour races. Really, really good insight and stuff. In fact, I'm, I think I'm taking a few of those tricks out of her book maybe and, and playing around with them a little bit. So I'd give that one a listen if you haven't already as well. I was talking about that with my mom actually this weekend. And we have, we have interviews where it is a story and then there are interviews where it is a learning experience. And hers was a learning experience. I'm sure she has fantastic stories and a great story of her own. But we didn't get into that. This this was we were here as like runners masterclass where you it was just to learn about the inner workings of a high performing endurance athlete. Yep. So go listen to that one too. Mm-hmm. Now are we done plugging things, do you think? Should we get on to Maybe <laughs> hair the, plugs? You think I should they, get into that next? No, I don't. I kinda like that tan middle spot on the top of your head. Oh, that's the worst, isn't it? When the sides aren't as tan as the top. I don't know. Is it? I mean, would you want a racing stripe? It's not a racing stripe. I don't know. I uh, shaved my facial hair and got a haircut, so I look like I'm, I don't know, I'd say five years younger today. It feels nice. Yeah, you lost five years when you got your haircut, and you lost five more when you shaved your face. I always got those two things in my back pocket, Brad, mm-hmm. for later when I need them. Yeah. Um, today's episode, guys, we're going to just dive into a few Q- Q&A questions. Uh, we got a queue of like 14 of them. Um, we're not necessarily going to get them all. We're going to keep this episode timely within like our training Tuesday time limit, typically circa day an hour, give or take. But um, I want to pluck a few of these off instead of making a long Friday episode out of it, which we often do just plugging in a few shorter Q and A's along the way. And we got some good questions in here that I'd like to check off. Mm-hmm. Before we get started, we left off with Justin saying all we got was story. We didn't even get to talk about because he's a coach as well. He's a, He trains himself. I wanted to talk about some of the things that attracted me to his training style in the first place, which is he's all about bulletproofing your quads and your legs and your knees for the downhills. And, of course, the uphills again. But I think whatever he's doing was proven correct with 39,000 feet of vert. You know, that's almost 80,000 feet of change over the course of the race, which is insane. So I do want to have him back on here sooner than later and finish up that conversation of everyone's issue in long races is the damage you take and he's found a way to mitigate that so i think that'd be a cool conversation i got three athletes running eau de 
coming up. Three. Really? Which is a lot. It'd be timely if we could get that out there before Ode to Laz now, wouldn't it? Might have to shuffle some things. Yeah. All right. We'll see. Question number one. Question number one. Um, this is from Ian Leistrand. Um, Lily, Lily J. Foreign, I'm assuming. Um, I started running again for the first time since high school, seven years, and finished a 10-month base building slash training for a marathon. I signed up for my first 10K Spartan race, Asheville, and have found that fast twitch muscles isn't really there anymore for burpees, explosive lifts, or short spicy stuff. What are your favorite workouts or movements that are best for working on this? Hmm. Hmm. Shameless plug could have been inserted right there. That's right. This is, I mean, there's a global way and a specific way of looking at this question. The global way would be get some compound power movements in there. You know, start cleaning again. Power clean is a great way to re-engage those fast twitch muscles. You can also put in standalone power movements like bench and squat, which are going to work the exact movements of burpees and things like that. If you're good at bench, you can get off the ground on a burpee. And then you've got to tie in together the actual functional dynamic movements and then do it while running. And now you're all set. But I think the more specific way is, you know yourself as an athlete. Like, are you going on 20 years of no functional fitness or fast twitch? Or is it just 12 weeks you've gone without and you know what you've responded to? So Asheville's far enough away. You can start with the global build. But sooner than later, I'd start going back to those things that you know to be true about your athletic self that get you feeling fast again. Because mine are probably different from Kirk's. If I think I'm missing fast twitch, I've got two or three things I need to do, and I start feeling snappy again. Mm-hmm. Hey, not to uh, distract from this question, but check your phone real quick. Check my phone. No. What do you got in there? <laughs> got a, a group text with... With the sheriff. Yeah. What's, what's the sheriff want? He wants you to get on a <laughs> podcast. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I just saw that pop up while, uh, while we were chatting. I agree with what you're saying. And and Ian is going through um, – Ian is going through that, that transition. It sounds like, like you did things right. It sounds like you laid a foundation, which we like to hear. Ten months. I mean, great job. Base building, so to speak, after getting back into running after some time off. And then you, you come up with the, you know, the conundrum of the runner who comes out to a OCR event and gets their ass kicked because they weren't prepared for running under duress. And so you're just experiencing that. And thank God you're not experiencing that out on the race course for the first time. You're experiencing it in training, which is exactly where you should experience it for the first time. So it's kind of one of those things where you need to keep rubbing your nose in it a little bit. Like just keep putting your foot to the flame and eventually that uncomfortability will become a little less uncomfortable, right? And so mm-hmm. um, just exposing yourself to it in some form every week at this point, I think, knowing you've laid a foundation is smart. Um, and then I think maybe some punchy speed work, which uh, which maybe it doesn't sound like you've been doing a lot of, might just help with your run economy. And then combining the two eventually in those last four weeks leading into the race, some spicy work, faster work with compromised uh, distraction, we will call it in there, but I think you're just going through the growing pains of transitioning is to an OCR mm-hmm. work. What do you think? Well, I think since we're doing a deeper dive into questions and not trying to hit them all today, I think this one might deserve a little bit deeper dive because this explores some other issues. The first is that there's two type of endurance athletes. There are those that train for a marathon and get better at everything. 
And there are those that train for a marathon, get good at a marathon, and get worse at everything else. Mm-hmm. And and it sounds like you might be the second athlete who all that specific long grindy work has dulled your other edges. So you got to address those edges. Yeah. You, oh, I don't know if you, you wanted gonna... to continue off. That. Oh, yeah, there's well, no, there, the yeah. second part. Yeah, well, yeah. Go but, ahead. I, mean, I was going to leave your your train of thought rolling if you wanted, and I agree. With well, that. let's let's chug along. The second is that sometimes it's a result of how you got there, because there are two ways as well of prepping for a marathon. The first is to do the classic as much mileage as you can handle and hit your big workouts along the way, and the second is to have sustainable mileage and hit bigger, longer, nastier workouts along the way. Like, are you getting ready for the marathon through your overall volume and try to like ride that knife's edge of what's too much and what's not enough? And, or are you trying to get yourself ready with big efforts? Riding that volume, if you get it right, often leads to a great race, but you're just so demolished afterwards that you've kind of like, you live in the state of fatigue and you can't do everything else well. And that helps dull your dull edges. Whereas the other one kind of allows you to stay more well-rounded, but doesn't necessarily guarantee that your high can be as high on marathon day. So taking a look at which athlete are you and which style did you use to get there, I think is important in deciding what you need to do to undo the damage that was done to your, your skill set. Yeah. Even just, you bring up a good point about like sharpening the edges, like being prepared for the sting of what this race is going to is going to require of you is very different than a calculated effort, either of a marathon or of just that type of base training. Like you never have to like, like base training is like just being rubbed with like a piece of sandpaper over and over. Like it's uncomfortable, but you can handle it. Whereas like sharp work and racing like this is like somebody just cuts you with a knife, like, ow, mm-hmm. like that hurts. And when you're not ready for that, like it really hurts and you're not ready and you, and you feel like you need to back off, stay away from the knife's edge. Right. And so, like, exposing yourself to that, like you mentioned, I think is very, very important. Um, Because if you're not ready for it and then you experience it for the first time in a workout or in the race, uh, if you don't recognize it, it's hard to respond your best to it. And so, like, I know I'm throwing just theoreticals still at this whole thing, but um, you got to know how it's going to feel come race day. And Mm -hmm. so, whatever workouts you're doing right now, I'm not sure to make you feel like, oh, like, I'm not ready for this. But what you're doing is probably correct in the fact that you're running well fatigued from something else, and that's a really good start. So just know that you can split hairs here, but um, the biggest thing is that you're actually doing that type of work right now to get ready. So I approve of that as a whole. Mm -hmm. Think back to college, Kirk. You had this giant divide between middle-distance runners and long-distance runners, and it was basically 3K and above or 1,500 meters and below. And both camps thought the other camp was the most insane camp you could have ever ever been a part of and that your event was the most painful thing out there. The 10K, 5K guys would be like, I cannot imagine running an 800 or a mile. Sometimes they drop down to a mile, but an 800 or 400, like that just is the worst pain on this planet. It is so sharp and miserable and stings. And we're like, yeah, but by the time it hurts, you're kicking. You're finishing. Plus, we've done all these twos, threes, fours, fives, hundred meter intervals that prepare us for this. But sitting in a 5K or a 10K and just grinding out that death by like just a thousand cuts, that sounds like the worst thing I could ever imagine. And they're like, no, it's fine. You just like get in your rhythm and hold it and then close it down the last mile or two. We're like, yeah, that last mile or two is longer than our whole race. So point of all this is that 
the thing you're not doing is terrifying and you don't have a callus built up to it. And balancing out those pains, that sharp versus the dull, the fast twitch versus the slow twitch is what rounds out your, your training and racing. I'll just put a nice end cap on this by saying, Ian, hop on the running public training plan. You won't have to think about it. That's right. Not to make it a cheap answer because we gave you some good filling in there. But um, This is a conversation. This next one I'm moving on to with my, my athlete, Natasha Manzel. And we had brought up, I don't remember when this was brought up, Bracken, but it was brought, I saved a screenshot of just our conversation and thought we should talk about it on a Q&A episode about how the body feels good, like following a vert effort. Like we do mm, an uphill yeah. workout and then a couple days later, like our legs just pop. And so she messaged me and we're having a conversation. And then she just said, next Q&A, I think you guys should throw some theories out about that topic. So she says, like, she messaged me and said, I really want someone to figure out what this is because it's not just a long-term adaptation. It's like days later. And I don't think it's just a mental perceived ease of flat versus the up. So trying to make sense of why so why this is. What are, you, what are you grimacing about? Well, part of what I love about these episodes is we do not preview 90 plus percent of the questions. You just read it or I read it and we have to react in the moment with whatever we're feeling at that time. Which is fun for me. I enjoy that. But this is the time I wish we had gone through this list because I received a message from two different scientific um, professionals about this months ago. And I don't know. I have it screenshot oh. to talk about, but I, I can't find that screenshot in the next like minute or two. Well, like any athlete of mine would know, and Natasha, for example, in this, I have her chasing vert on a Thursday, let's say, and it's just easy vert, but we're getting vert. We don't care about how far we're going. We just want to go up. We take all the downhills easy. And you'll see that workout prescribed on our training plan too. So you guys know what I'm talking about. And then I'll give her a quality workout on a Saturday, which is only two days later. And she always pops. Like she's just like ready to crush. Her legs feel good and she dominates it. And it's like two days later and it's like clockwork for her. And I've noticed similar things and and it does and she's saying and i've noticed too like whether it's on the treadmill or it's outside as long as you're not crushing that vert chasing two days before the legs mm -hmm. pop so that's what yeah. we're talking about for those of you who don't know and it's something a couple of us have noticed and we're trying to make sense of it well we've talked about how part of it is you're getting all the stimulus with none of the pounding correct and so you're actually just coming in more fresh and with less damage and eccentric damage is one of the most damaging damages to the human body because it's just it's confounding to your system it's 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 not something you experience all the time and it's the force it generates is just very destructive and it takes a while to recover from it eccentric damage is taken from downhill running and to a lesser extent fast flat running and that's the reason you only have to do downhill work every other week or every three weeks because in terms of big efforts because it it keeps up that that recovery cycle which is just slower than others so you 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 exclude all of that and so you actually just do recover quicker but oh i wish i had those screenshots in front of me this might have to be uh we slightly address it today and then i read those off and that prompts a conversation next time yeah and i don't even know if we dive into it any further than the theory we've come up with is that you know, you, if you're doing vert on a treadmill, for example, you take l way less pounding than if you were to run flat on concrete or run downhill. And so we're just not creating as much muscle damage. And then if you're running vert out on real terrain and taking the downhills easy, you're minimizing at least the eccentric load. So is yeah. that less demanding than just going out and running flat for 70 minutes? 
versus going up and down your local ski hill at a, at a recovery effort. Um, hard to say, but it's a noteworthy conversation is what I'm getting at. So we mm-hmm. do need to find those answers. Well, and you did a good job last time talking about the mental perceived effort that accompanies this. And if you're running uphill, there is no floating. There is no momentum. There is no anything but putting out power and fighting gravity. And so even if you're running 5K pace uphill and then switch to flat 5K, flat 5K feels like much less work than it does running uphill. Running uphill at 5K effort is very demanding. And on the road, you do get to get into a rhythm and you can coast a little bit and you can have momentum help you a little bit. And all those little extra little percentage points you get off that makes it feel so much easier physically and mentally. I agree with that. Yeah, it's like if you're truly running on flat terrain, it's essentially a version of a controlled fall every time your foot comes forward. And then when you're going uphill, uh, that controlled fall becomes much more of a propulsion um, to just move it all versus taking advantage of gravity. It kind of works against you. And so there's a big difference there. Yeah. Yeah. Uphill is just pure engine and force output. And uh, people would argue that flat is as well, but less so compared to uphill. Yeah. Um, next question, Len Ames, another athlete of mine, um, Q and a, I've seen Bracken Diaz and others using a band on the treadmill. Can you guys discuss how and why someone would utilize a band? Go ahead. Well, bands will make you dance Kirk and you got to keep that in mind. Why are you using it? Like what, what kind of dance are you trying to perform? And Diaz and I use it for two different reasons. He will put his band behind his athlete oftentimes so that they are encouraged to get their foot driving back up in the air and underneath their butt. And they actually have to hit the band with their calf or their Achilles or their foot on the way through. So it's cycling your legs through. It's turning your heels over high and getting them up underneath you. Because the faster you can get your heel up under your butt, the faster it's going to get down to the ground. And he's very much a cadence-based running coach. So that's reason number one to use it. I put it in front of me for two reasons. The first is that I do my speed work on the Nordic Track X11i. That's their incline trainer, and it has that flex bendy belt and platform, which is supposed to cushion you and provide, I don't know, relief from the impact, which it does, but it also feels like it's going to fall apart once you start getting under six-minute pace. And once you approach five-minute pace... I cannot run flat at five minute pace on my treadmill because it is, it's just bouncy and shaky and I'm going to break it. But the farther you move back, the flex point seems to be in the middle. So the farther you move back towards the rear of the treadmill, the more stable it is and the less drop you actually have. The front of the belt drops the most in the platform and then the rear drops the least because it's kind of anchored back there. So I put a band across my treadmill and I know if I'm behind this, I'm running in a stable position, but if I'm keeping my legs up, I'm getting good leg knee drive, but I'm also, if I touch it on each one, I know I'm not going to slip off the back of the treadmill because I can't get too close to the back. So I use it for knee drive because if you ever watch me run, I'm, I'm a shuffle runner. If I have any amount of fatigue in me, even when I'm running fast, I don't have a lot of knee drive. And also so I can run on my sweet spot without running off the back of my treadmill and getting really injured because my weights are directly behind my 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 treadmill yeah that's i wish that's the only uh 
checkbox in the negative column on that Nordic track is it's got such that flex cushion. I forget what it's coined. It says right on next to the flex track or flex belt. Something. It really does take a lot of your impact, but once you start running fast, it's got so much shock absorption that the treadmill actually bounces up and down, and it's it really feels like potentially dangerous. Mm-hmm. But uphill, it's fantastic, and even like I'll just do my speed work at three to six percent incline yep. now on that. And it, it's it exactly works. what I do. But yeah, I, I can't think of anything else. Those those are the th- places my mind went that you outlined. So i think that's it the other thing he richard might have an anchor point at times where he attaches a band to a belt so that it forces you to generate power forward rather just than just up and down on the treadmill because that's the downside of the treadmill is that you're not actually propelling yourself forward you just have to get your feet off the ground each time and so by adding a band to an anchor point behind you it forces you to get a bit of a forward lean which is oftentimes where people miss stride wise on a treadmill they don't forward lean that gives you a forward lean and makes you work a little bit which if you've ever done you immediately feel your rear chain it's very interesting yeah i would say for the most common purposes i mean i think the decreasing the treadmill jobble is probably less common more common you'll see the band in front of you to make sure you're lifting your legs and knees high enough keeping good uh biomechanics while running mostly it's just used as, as a touch point for your top of your leg right most every time i post a video people ask this question yeah um next question ben morgan here's a question slash discussion for the podcast you could probably respond to this with just yes next question so what do you all think about purposefully running ugly when i first started running trails i would walk up hills mostly but over time i was able to move up to kind of a slow ugly jog and i think it's working pretty well for me better than walking. I can pick up to a faster pace quickly after ascending. I tend to see myself as a Mark Botris shuffle. That's not to insult him. It's clearly working for him, but he kind of has an ugly shuffle. And that's how I see myself when I'm running uphill. Do you think it's useful? Do you think there's a place for it? Question mark. I like the question. I do. Well, well, well ugly is subjective. Um, and Mark Botris is an interesting example because I would say he's the opposite of a shuffle. That man is always driving. Well, correct. And so I think it's misinterpreted here. I think Woodsy has an uphill shuffle. Yes, he does. So, and a longer stride when he goes uphill. Mm-hmm. What you're mistaking an ugly shuffle out of Mark Botcher's for is actually quick little steps, which are actually very, very efficient from an uphill standpoint. So although it looks like he's not opening his stride up, which you could maybe coin a shuffle, most or all of the best climbers in our sport, it's these very tight strides that are very efficient. This shuffle you're talking about. When you're running uphill, it's not really a shuffle because there's still knee drive and uphill mechanics going. But I believe that's what you're referring to is increasing your cadence while going uphill and taking these short, choppy steps. You may interpret it as ugly running. I interpret it as efficient to see going uphill. Um, and then the answer would be yes. Next question to, yeah. to his beginning is that, yeah, I think there's... There's a lot of merit. The funny thing about this, Bracken, is I did an uphill tempo at 30% last week. Went horribly. My rent came due. My bot had two weeks of good workouts, and my rent came due in that workout, and I, I kind of shit the bed, but I stuck it out for 30 minutes. And interestingly enough, I was alternating between power hiking and running. Running real upright and proper, short choppy steps for three minutes, and then I'd allow myself to power hike for one minute. I just picked a, a set speed on the treadmill. And... 
Every time I stood up out of a power hike to start my running again, my heart rate dropped on average three to four beats per minute within that first 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And then it stayed lower. And I can't figure out what that is other than that that's more economical for me. And it's actually less muscular recruitment, like the glutes get less involved and whatever. So I notice it every single time. So it's just an interesting thing to say, well, is uphill shuffling more efficient than uphill power hiking? Well, maybe for me it is from a metabolic standpoint. I don't know. So it's a roundabout way of telling this gentleman that, yeah, there might be some merit to what you're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we talked about this on an episode a while back on, it was actually a training Tuesday about practicing your race stride, where we said you have to practice your best stride with speed work, but you have to practice your, your race stride. The one you use once you're compromised, that stride has to become its best version of itself. So you're not practicing ugly, you're practicing functional. And, and I'm the prime example. I have two strides. I have my pristine stride and I have my stride once things started to hit the fan. And practicing spending more time in that is a very good idea because in theory, you bring those strides closer together over time. Mm-hmm. So what's you? What, what are you more efficient at? Do you think? Well, initially, initially I was far more efficient running uphill than hiking. And it took a concerted effort. One one of which I did not even do in Colorado. That was my time. I had mountains to power hike and I just couldn't get myself to spend long times power hiking out there. I I just, I couldn't force myself to do that. Something I've got better with in Wisconsin after getting my incline trainer. Cause I, I always used to look at Ryan Atkins and I've brought this up before. So I know I'm getting redundant, but there were two or three races in one season where I was fit enough to be with Ryan on the mountains. Not forever. I think I only beat him one time that year. And he was at the end of a massive training block, and I was rested for a race. But in all three races, I was running up the hill, and he was power hiking up the hill. And you can hear me, and you could not hear him. You know, our breathing rates were not the same. So I always used to think, I know there's another gear in there to be unlocked, but you'd have to put in the time that he's put in. He is so efficient with his power hiking and he can get low. He gets to a position, an angle where the rest of us would have our diaphragm, you know, compressed or impacted. And I think that's part of why the heart rate issue is your heart's having to work harder to get the blood pumped out because your oxygen is a little bit impinged. And he doesn't struggle with that. That big barrel chest that he has, has it's kind of like Lance on the bike, where he had that perfectly rounded back that allowed his chest cavity to be unimpeded, and he could just get full oxygen in, in his aero position. And I think Ryan has that mechanical, physiological advantage with power hiking. Whether that's genetics or practice, he can get full oxygen while bent over at a very low angle. In fact, he's one of the lowest angle power hikers I know of. Yeah, sometimes it's like his knees are in his own belly. He's leaning over his quads as much as he does, yeah. even at, at at not even terribly steep grades sometimes. And his stride length in his power hike is longer than anybody I can think of in sport. Yeah. When he opens it up. It is a giant, powerful hiking movement. Um, I think I think that is a skill worth training if you have some of these big races coming up, like a Utah where. Uh, one of those climbs is mostly power hiking for the majority of participants. Um, I see benefit in that. For me, just alone on my tempo, and by tempo I meant I set my treadmill to a certain speed and I was just going to keep it, right? That'd be a tempo, mm-hmm. not a threshold workout for clarity here. Uh, although I wasn't threshold most of the time. But 
Um, point being, it's just interesting learning your body and those nuances, paying attention to heart rate comparatively, seeing what fatigues on you when you move in and out of things. And I, I learned a lot by, by playing around with that. Um, mm-hmm. did, have you ever noticed any heart rate response difference out of yourself? Yeah, early on, the moment I'd bend over to to start power hiking, I'd get like five to ten seconds of of relief. And then I'd start to get like this stomach nausea, this burn a little bit. My heart rate would start climbing, even though I was working easier. And then the rear chain would start fatiguing. Mm-hmm. And as I got better at, at hiking, that stopped happening. And eventually it got to the point where I'd done more ultra training than anything else these last couple of years. And power hiking was more of a relief. I'd stand up to run at the same incline and I'd start to just fatigue because I wasn't in good enough shape to run at that speed, but I could hike a little better. So it flipped a little bit. When I'm in equivalent shape, I'm a better runner than hiker up hills for sure. Just interesting. It's interesting to look at that stuff because I, mm-hmm. you'd always think, I don't know, a walk can't, can't be harder than a, a run, can it? But apparently my body thinks so. Last year, OCC, that race on the UTMB weekend where John Albin won, he won on the final climb where he'd been outclimbed all day long. And I think it was Robbie Simpson, who's a professional marathoner slash trail runner for Adidas. Robbie had been catching John and passing him on every uphill all day long. And John did his John thing and would run people down on the downhills. John caught him broke him past him on the final uphill as Robbie was running the Mark Batra style of short, fast steps. And John gave up his running and switched to power hiking, thinking this was it and power hiked up and caught him. So in that moment and reading John's recap, I, I referenced this a couple months ago. I was reading John's recaps, go back and read his OCC recap. He was in the process of contemplating giving up and power hiking saved his race. And Robbie didn't have he either didn't have that club in his bag or he wasn't sure that he should reach for that club. And so he didn't switch to it. And John just moved right past him. And it looks like an optical illusion because Robbie's running with fast cadence and John's walking and John dropped him. John, uh, John is in monster shape. I mean, every year he gets in better shape than he was the previous. And he's to the point where he's like, you know, going toe to toe with the likes of some of the greats of all time, as far as metrics. It's amazing, it's amazing what uh, getting into training camp with Killian did for his fitness. Yeah. Who would have thought, right? Those two are just boys now. Just John and Killian out in the mountains playing around. He's reached the pinnacle. Next question, multi-sport Dave. I have a Garmin Fenix. What data should I care about, even if it's only relative to me over a period of time? P.S. When will Garmin have mod? Give the people what they want, Garmin. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, uh, what data should you care about in your Garmin? Garmin Fen- is it Phoenix? 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 Probably. F- it's it's spelled Phoenix, but I like saying Phoenix. Yeah, me too. So, what data should people care about on their smartwatches? I'm assuming this is this is probably his first technologically advanced watch, so he doesn't know how what to make of it. Well, to me, there is only there are only two differences between the advanced watches and the regular watches. They all do the same thing, which are the most important, which is your time, your distance, your pace, cadence, heart rate, all those things. They'll all do it. What you get from the advanced are two things. The first is you get real time altitude. You can see what you're what you are sitting at altitude wise and how much change you've had throughout your run. And that's very important to us. That's not something you need to pay attention to in terms of progression as athlete. But then the second 
piece is convenience and safety of being able to plan routes and follow them on your watch and set breadcrumbs and get back to your start point if you get lost in the mountains. But in terms of things you need to track, I don't think the advanced watches give you anything special that the regular watches don't. Because I don't care as much about vertical oscillation as a trail runner and other things like that. Well, now assuming multi-sport Dave is on the trails, um, multi-sport Dave could be a road runner, um, potentially, if that means, mm-hmm. I don't know, triathlete or something. But um, first of all, like your training status on any smartwatch, you know, mine says unproductive right now because I've been running on the trails and chasing vert. <laughs> and your watch doesn't distinguish flat from vert. For some reason, they haven't gotten there yet. So it always tells me I'm deconditioning. So don't pay attention to that because your watch is smarter in quotes now. Don't pay attention to your training status, whether it says peaking or overreaching. Well, overreaching might be all right because it's just heart rate data that goes on. But um, don't just don't let that get in your head. Don't let it build false confidence or false like deconditioning sort of thought process. And then I agree with you, man. The heart rate is, you know, is going to be king on anything and still attach that thing to an external heart rate monitor. Um, the technology isn't there yet. We've pounded that into the dirt on this podcast, I would say. Um, I like the big thing about it that I like is the altimeter built in that you mentioned. If you know, like you are, let's say you have a race in Utah coming up and you have a 2,500 foot climb and then a 2000 foot climb, and you know, those are what it is like that can allow you to go out in the mountains and actually simulate that. Go find a two, 2000 foot climb, make it to 2000, bomb the descent. You could actually emulate like course elevation profiles in real time. You're going to know your elevation change and gain. And that is Uh, I think really important to know, like I have a local ski hill and I don't like, I start running up and down that. And I know I'm preparing for races with four to 5,000 feet of vert, but my ski hill is only 200. Like knowing that I've actually reached the amount of elevation I'm going to see in a race real time by my watch telling me that is super helpful to give me confidence being somebody who doesn't live in the mountains. So I think those are it. And then, and then the other thing on the Fenix is it actually gives you good training metrics for other more modalities, multi-sport Dave. So if you hop on the rower or the bike, like those metrics just yes. become more accurate. And so that's where I like that watch in that, in that sense. And then what you said about like literally getting lost in the woods or the mountains and being able to navigate out, like your watch will show you where you are at in the universe at all times. And I could see that being very beneficial to like saving your life. Yeah, absolutely. I think at the end of the day, the only metrics that truly matter outside of heart rate for a runner are the same things that mattered from the dawn of time when you're using your your sun position in the sky like Danny did on her runs or the stove Mm. timer like you and I. There are really three ways to know you're getting faster or better. The first is that with the same effort, you're getting faster on a particular run or workout. The second is that with less effort, you're keeping the same pace you used to. And the third is that with more effort, you're going faster, but you can keep more effort now. Those are the only things to know, and that all can be done with time and distance. So at the end of the day, you don't need something crazy to track. To to answer your most basic question, what should I be tracking? If you're getting faster over duration, that's improvement. Yep, I agree. I'm at the point now where if there was a watch that just gave me both ends of the spectrum, distance, time, and then altimeter and breadcrumb or trail making, that's all I would need. I don't need anything in the middle. I just want the two poles. Mm-hmm. What I wish they would do, exist. I know you can go in the back end and create the workouts, but like right from your watch itself, like maybe you can do this and somebody can message me about it. You but. can, but it's only basic. 
you can only do even intervals. Like you right. can set one interval duration and one restoration and one round type. Correct. Which is like, like this week I want to do a split tempo where I'll do a tempo run mm-hmm. intervals in the middle tempo run again to finish. And I can't program it in my watch. It's not possible. I have to go, but in the back end in like the app and do it and then upload just kind of a pain in the ass. So I never do it. That's the one thing I wish we could do on our watches, like in there, give us more options right in the watch face. Don't you? Right in the watch. Yeah. I enjoy building the workouts when I'm in a training block and I've got a big workout. It's like part of the night before it gets me all pumped up to do it. Or in the morning, if I'm going to get up and have some caffeine and maybe get in my Normatec boots or whatever, air relax, actually air relax yeah. boots. That's fun for me kind of. But that day where you're like, shoot, this isn't going to work. I just got to switch to a different workout or the terrain's not right or whatever it is. And you just want to switch in the moment. That's a hassle because you're at the trailhead and you just can't change your workout. And then it's just, it just kind of pisses you off. You're right. It would be nice to have a full menu in there to be able to create workouts. I can't imagine it would be that difficult, but I don't, I don't know how that all works on the, the back end. But. Yeah. I suppose the, the workaround is in the app on your phone. You could probably do it, but yeah. I haven't done that, actually. Me either. Tom Simeone says. I used to work with Tom. Yeah. He's, he's kind of a monster of a man. Yeah, he is. You that seen guy, Tom? Yeah, that guy is jacked out of his gourd. Um, yeah. Been following this guy on IG, Bert, Bob, for a while now and thought he would be a good runner to interview. He's a mid-distance runner from Luxembourg, Bob Bertemes. Big on working on stride tech, proper warm-up, and running on feel. He also might be as obsessed with sneaks as Bracken is. Just a thought. Well, that's not a question, I guess, but you got it saved. What do you think? Have you heard of this guy, Bob? Nope. Right. No, but I, I think if you're really focused on middle distance, like it sounds like Bob is, he's a middle distance runner, working on your stride and your, your warm-up and your drills is paramount to success. If you think back to college, Kirk, that's when we did all our stride work. Every single day had like a 15-minute component of of doing all your speed drills to be able to run well. That's You can't run fast without running well is, is a version of what Rich Diaz would say. And it's true at that speed level. And I think it's probably something we forget as we move up. Danny's, Danny's line about why do I run speed work? It's because efficiency is everything. The more efficient I can run at any pace, the more I can race without taking huge amounts of fatigue damage. And I think that's something that I need to incorporate better into my coaching and training is remember that the building blocks are always the building blocks, regardless of what race you're trying to train for. Yeah, I agree. If anybody can vouch vouch for Bob, let us know. If we get some other people asking for Bob, maybe we'll reach out. Um, Matt Malone, uh, question for the Q&A. When returning from injury, how long is too long to just run easy to rebuild some level of base? I mean, in theory, there is no time that's too long. But I think as soon as you can safely handle sprinkles of anything, you start with that. Because that is your key towards not being injured in the future. As soon as you can start speed sprinkles and uphill and downhill and terrain sprinkles, those round out your your healthfulness as a runner. And they set the stage for skill work. So you can stay in speed as long as you want, but getting into that transitional, I mean, staying easy base as long as you want, but getting into transitional base is helpful for you as an all-around runner. 
Yeah, I think starting with short bouts is um, is the way to go with that, your sprinkles, like you had mentioned. I think just as important to think about, like, first of all, like, do, do I think you should just get time on feet? Yeah, like, at least give yourself four to six weeks of just time on feet to get your, your bearings again. But then after that, it almost comes down to, like, yeah, you could jump into a quality session, but how, how far apart are they going to be now? Like, as an athlete who's well-trained and injury-free – you can get away with two a week, no problem. But when you're coming back, that intensity really hits different. And so it's like, mm-hmm. well, if you want to get some speed work in because you just need that, and I understand the need for that. We just talked about it, how throwing in shorter efficiency work can be beneficial. Um, maybe it's like, well, I'll only do one quality session a week for the next four weeks and make sure I'm good here. So it's also like not diving in on the deep end. You know, It's more like easing in on the shallow end and then just kind of maybe once a week and just holding back on the frequency of, of quality work more than anything. And that can be thrown in at somewhat of an early stage, in my opinion, as long as you got four to six weeks of like clean, I don't know, healthy running under your belt. What do you think about that? I agree with that. I'm not a nutritionist or a dietitian and I never, ever claim to be. In fact, I usually don't like talking about it. But one thing I've used with myself personally throughout the years is I listen to my body's cravings. Because when you're doing one thing, the thing that your body's craving often tells you what you're missing. You know, it's no it's no real shocker or mystery why a lot of runners crave salty foods after big workouts or races. Because you've depleted your electrolyte stores and you need some sodium in your life and different things like that. I've I've always been a believer of listen to your cravings in life. It tells you what you're not getting enough of on a regular basis. You know, <laughs> within the confines of normal morality and <laughs> and legality in this world. But I believe that with running and my 100 mile week showed me that Kirk, it was driven home to me over the course of the week. The things I started craving or feeling weird about were the things that need to be present in my week. And the things that I couldn't fit in to hit my volume were very telling. I couldn't fit quality. I couldn't fit any speed. I couldn't really do drills because my calves were always a little twingy. And it showed me that A, I need more of those things. And B, this is the cost of high, high, too high a volume. Sure, you could hit this volume. I could keep hitting 100 mile weeks if I had to. But at the cost of my well-roundedness. So then thinking, what could I lower myself down to to be able to put the other things back in? And that's kind of should be your base training, like your base building shouldn't be just volume. It should be, how can I build the best base without having to have these cravings and these deficiencies in my diet? But you're saying, listen to those cravings. Like if he's been doing his base building now and he's come back from injury and his intuition or his cravings are saying like, I just want to run fast. Listen to it. Find a way to put that in there. If, you, if your stride's just telling you I'm sluggish and slow, start having some fast, quick turnover stuff. If you're starting to feel like, oh, I'm missing out on whatever my life, uphills, I just, I don't feel like I could drive uphill. Start doing some uphill work. I think that those those worries and those cravings are worth acknowledging, but you don't just pivot and turn towards it. You find a way to incorporate it. That's the way to go through that base building period. Yep. I like it. Do we want to give him an answer as to how long is too long? If we had to, how long is too long when coming back from injury to stay in base? I don't know if there's ever a need to go past 12 weeks. Yeah. And 12 is already on the very long side. You're getting just such diminishing returns after that point. 
I would say generally six. There's not much of a need to go past. And then hit that, as I like to say, transitional base and hold that for a while. But, yeah, those are my two numbers. Twelve is just about as long as any human could ever want to, and six is probably enough for most humans. Yeah. Um, Caleb Conlin, question for the next podcast. Thoughts on microdosing strength sessions daily for runners? I see it a lot in high school and high-level sports teams, especially in season. How would you implement it optimally for both maximum running and strength benefits? I see a lot of runners do a short strength circuit after their run and can't imagine that's the best thing for the strength session. This is a very interesting question because it's observant. That's what happens at the collegiate level. In a lot of the pro camps, you get done and, all right, go do, we're going to do 10 by 5 pull-ups, and then we're going to do 5 by 30-second planks, and we're going to do a couple push-ups and move on. And that's enough because we don't want to get too tired. And really Mm -hmm. all that is is that is not having experts weigh in on your training. It's my, when I got down to Campbell university, which is a D one running program, albeit a small one, we filled up water bottles with sand and we did running stride work, standing still pumping our arms for 60 seconds, holding sand. And then we do a few push ups and sit ups. And that was our strength session after like th- our easy runs each week, it's just cause nobody knows any better at that level. That's allowed to be part of the team. The running coach didn't want the the strength training coach to be a part of it because he was going to bulk his athletes up and throw them off track. And so he was left to his own devices. So it is really common, Caleb. You are absolutely correct. And like you, I can't think of a situation where it would be the best practice. I also think if it's done correctly, there's it could make a lot of sense. Just I think you can get most of the juice out of the squeeze if uh, if you know I don't know what people's. Um schedules are like and how busy they are but yeah i do think that microdosing like could absolutely work if it's done with purpose and method if you're hitting all the the pieces you would be hitting let's say instead with three one to one and a half hour strength sessions while well, you were hitting all of those pieces split up into five or six days uh yeah yeah i do think that you could get yourself most of the way there it's like you're gonna check the boxes by the end of the week then I think we're splitting hairs a little bit, in my opinion, on that. I have an athlete who actually is doing that right now by experimentation. I'm very curious, starting it this week. I'm very curious how it's going to go for him. But as long as there's purpose behind your movements, um, I think it's okay. I don't know. I don't see a problem with it. Does it well, jump this is out why, This is why you need two people to work on a problem, Kirk. Yeah. Because I was thinking about it totally differently, the way you're explaining it. Yes. I was looking at it from you're getting subpar training and you're just trying to do like five or 10 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. The way you're talking about it. Yeah. A lot of runners, especially early on or really high level track runners, they might not be able to sustainably squat and deadlift in the same session and still hit their 80 to hundred mile week or whatever they're doing. They might not want to do all those things in one session because it is too demanding of them or it is too effective at what it does. You know, if you're benching and overhead press and bent over row in one session, you're just more likely to build muscle than if you bench one day with less sets and then two days later do overhead press and two days later do bent over row. You are you are parceling it out in a way that might be more palatable to a distance runner. I don't know. I could see myself like if I was in a time crunch, I had a home garage or a home gym and it's like, yeah, I could barbell squat and follow that up with some weighted walking lunges, get that done in 25 minutes and still have time for my six mile recovery run. 
and not have to give or take anywhere. Um, yeah. I could just see it like, yeah, if I squat right and heavy and I hit those walking lunges or Bulgarians, like I'm probably going to get most of the way there that day. Um, I don't know. I mean, I like to separate them but just yeah. for ease of schedule, but I could see it working. I guess my the burr in my saddle, Kirk, is the is when it's not coming from someone who has a, a background with it. And they're just like, yeah, we're going to do our core five times a week in our group circle after our easy run with no real plan to it. I think that's what you see most often is they just throw some random things at their athletes. And the lunge matrix is so common in high school athletes. So we're just going to get after our easy runs. We're going to get done and we're going to do our lunge matrix four times a week. Like, is it better than nothing? Probably. Could you spend your time much more efficiently? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I guess as long as it's well thought out, but um, yeah, well thought out is the key. That totally the key. All right, let's make this the last question. Okay. Okay. You cool with that? Super cool. Sweet. Chris John Jan says, Hey guys, Q and a question. I'm thinking of doing distance trials in my training rather than time trials. IE how far can I go in five minutes instead of how long does it take me to run a mile? Any red flags with this approach? I think you sort of time-based time trialing versus distance-based time trialing. Anything, any problem there? No, no, I don't have a problem with it. Because in a vacuum, it might be the most idyllic way to, to test for this because you could try to hold the same pace each outing and make it farther. And it's just very black and white with how much you've improved. Where part of running a 5k faster each time or a mile is getting your your splits right and playing around with your strategy this would just be a pure test of output i'm setting myself to this output and i'm holding it as long as i can over time it might be mentally straining to be able to get up for that sort of effort Um, but no i don't i don't see inherent red flags i think you're testing the same thing in a different way yeah i don't either and i do like that in a sense where let's say you don't have a perfect um, perfect route or like it involves some hills or rolling terrain or other things, then you kind of have to throw like time out the window as far as like how fast am I right now? Well, if you have a five mile trail and you want to time trial that, I guess that would be a distance metric in a sense, but it does negate like we're not looking at those concrete 5k times or mile times. We're just looking for effort over a over a a course, so to speak, that you've picked out. And so I like that, that time, just like to throw the distance out and pick like a route that approximately should take you a half hour and then hit it. And that's a lot of times more applicable to like races you have coming up if you're emulating race terrain. So maybe another version, I'm not quite addressing what you're asking there, but I could see it working itself out that way too. I think it, I'm actually intrigued by this now that I think about it. Okay. Let's let's say instead of the treadmill challenge, trying to do 15 minutes at as fast as possible, you take your current treadmill challenge pace and see if next time you can keep it for 16 minutes and then next time for 17 or 17, 20 or whatever. That would be a good kind of companion test for not just high end output, but also some staying power that there's I think there's some merit there. Yeah, I don't hate it. No. There's a workout I've, I've been giving called Pace Proof to some athletes where we choose a pace based on what they think they can currently do or their fitness, and that's day one. And then you have to run that pace for a mile 
on 60 seconds rest. And sometimes I choose 45 for certain athletes and you have to run it until you can't keep the pace without racing anymore until your form breaks. And over the course of time, I goes eight reps, number one, and I had a guy get to 17 by mile as he's building up for a trail marathon at his, I think he was trying to run like six Oh five pace or something like that. And it was kind of a, kind of that sort of test where he's trying to go longer at the same effort rather than faster. Mm-hmm. Be another play on it. Mm-hmm. I, I do like, I think like you said, it could, it could be tough to get up for them in the future. Like part of running faster is that weird little carrot dangling that if you run faster, you're done earlier. Like you're actually rewarded for your improvement by getting done with the effort faster, which is a weird carrot to dangle, but it absolutely works for me. So there's not a lot of incentive to run faster because it's still going to be 15 minutes, let's say of pain. You're going to hurt longer this way. Technically, (laughs) Right. You're going to, right, exactly. So it's like, that's the one like little caveat there where I could see it like playing mind games where it may, I could see it not getting the most out of you potentially because there's no reward for your effort. Obviously the satisfaction of knowing you held a faster pace should be reward enough, but our brains are good at like talking us in and out of things like that. So I could see that being an issue, but it's not a red flag. It's just like my own tendency might lead me down that path. Well, in any well-trained or even a runner who's raced off and knows that feeling of seeing I'm going out in 80 and you come through at 78 and you feel good and you're like, oh shoot, I got two seconds in the bank. And you get a little excited and every step for the rest of the time you're running math in your head and you're checking your splits and you're getting ahead and you're getting ahead. That wouldn't happen in a distance-based test. You would have to get excited by something else. Maybe I'm going out in 80 no matter what. And now this time I come through and, oh, look, my heart rate's two beats lower than last time. And you would have to really find ways to keep yourself motivated during because otherwise you're just waiting to get to what you were used to, what you used to hit. And now the reward starts. It would be a mental test for sure. And it it might, yeah, that concept of if you do it correctly, you're punishing yourself because you have to hurt for longer. For some people, that might be right up their alley, but it couldn't be your, I don't know if it could be your only test. It would be a good companion test. I don't see anything wrong with it, point being, but I also see no. your brain getting in the way, maybe. That's it. Yeah. Now that and it might be better it. for longer tests, like a max gain test. Mm-hmm. Like an hour, maybe. Be, yeah. The next time it might be fun to try to make it 70 minutes at 3.0 or whatever it is that you were doing. I don't see me kicking home as much no you'd want to leave some room for next time <laughs> yeah i don't i can see that all right that's a rabbit hole we could go back and forth on but no red well, and that's flags. always it's also a subjective test all tests are right mm-hmm. but knowing could i hang on for 10 seconds more could i do for 20 like it would be the one test where you could actually run yourself until you passed out if you were that tough and that type of effort is really hard to to reenact so you'd have to have some guidelines to it. Yeah. Another version would be like, it'd have to be done on a treadmill or you'd have to be really good with your pacing, but like, all right, I'm going to go run seven minute pace and I'm going to do it as long as I can until I can no longer tolerate the effort, for example, and then go back and do the same thing at seven minute pace and see if you make it longer. Yeah. Go at seven one and see if it's like uh, little games you can play if you're sick of the traditional time trialing that work very well. I think. And you could set a heart rate cap. You could say like, that's 180 today. Anything above that is starting to go to the well, stupid effort. So seven miles per hour until I crack 180 and then I'm off. Yep. Yeah. I did the same thing with my uphill tempo last week. There's a local, not a yeah, local high school where when I was coaching high school track and they, they had stud 
200, 400 meter runners, but their standard test was 60 seconds for distance. Hmm. And they'd always be like, oh, this guy made it 500 meters in 60 seconds. And everyone would be like, oh, he's ready to run. You know, it was like, it was this big aura around, could you break 450 meters or get close to five? And those were the studs who were running sub 50 in the quarter. But so those guys did that. They would do a 60 second max effort and they'd have cones set up and the guys would be all trying to get one cone further. Mm -hmm. I don't mind that either. I think whatever Mm -hmm. gets you up. (laughs) Yeah, right. Repeatable Mm -hmm. and excitable. Yeah. Um, all right, we're going to cut it there. Uh, folks, don't forget to go go sign up for that running public training camp or training plan. Training camp. That's yeah, me excited. Yeah. It's like, ooh, camp time. I still get messages about that once in a while that we need to do that. So we need to chew on that a little more. I saw Adam Buck posted a trail video this weekend of something that mm-hmm. they just made. Man, it's a master. Crash, I broke – he held a uh, – he held a, a crown – an FKT, we'll call it, on uh, 10 times up and down Highland Ski Hill. And I didn't know that was a thing. Like, somebody did 10 times loop, so I went out there and smashed it last week, and I've been rubbing it in his face. And that guy can climb, so one of his first uh, hard efforts back, he's going to go and try to take the 10 times multiplier back. So, Adam, I got your number, man. Watch out. Did you break it down by up and down and see what your average up versus his was compared to the down? No, and he had done it a couple of years ago. And I went out there and, I mean, I raced the last five times up and down. The first five were in control, mm-hmm. and I was like, I was ready to drop the hammer. But it, it smoked me, man. But I think I got it by like a minute and a half. So it'll be it'll be a good effort for him, but I'm a little nervous he's going to get it. So What's his fitness right now? Well, he went out and did the Mount Baker Ultra and got yanked off course, um, which is – it involves like uh, ice climbing and all these other things. So he was training for that, and they cut him off because of, of weather. Um, it was like they only allowed like three or four people who beat him to the punch to get up there, and then the rest got cut off. So unfortunately, mm. uh, that's what we were training for. He recovered after that, and now he's back to it. But um, anyways, yes, running public training plan. Go check it out. And then uh, if you've been curious about one-on-one coaching, now's a good time to reach out to Bracken or I. Um, slide into my DMs and what email you at Bracken Cracker at the running public. Just- just bracken i'm a mononym kirk i'm like seal or share it's true Uh, and plus everybody gets your last name wrong anyways am i just kirk at the running public yeah but i don't think you even ever activated yours no i don't i I pay for your domain i pay for your for your your email we we pay for it My, my bad so it's there but you just haven't had a a real itch to use it no sticking to gmail who knows what we're going to find when you log into that thing for the first time? Yeesh. I don't know. Somehow how to make, how to have, how bots help make me money on the internet, probably. Hopefully all those Saudi princes have been <laughs> able to hold themselves together until you can get back to their emails. I sure hope so. All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening. See you for the long run. Mm-hmm.